As a listener of the Shift Your Consciousness podcast presented by Marcus White and Jordan Briggs, we would like you to understand that this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Any changes to your supplementation, nutrition or lifestyle should only be done after consulting with a medical professional. Welcome to the Shift Your Consciousness podcast. My name is Marcus White. And my name is Jordan Briggs. We help people overcome a range of chronic and acute health issues and empower people to live a healthy, fulfilling life. Our mission in this podcast is to bring oppressed and current relevant information from all realms of health that you most likely don't know to empower new possibilities in your health journey. We want to help free your mind of the indoctrination of the mainstream medical system, media and societal dogma that disempowers your ability to heal, grow and live a connected life. If you're someone who is feeling trapped in your journey, not getting answers, but also equally fascinated in learning how to address the root cause to your health issues and is also open-minded to all mediums of health, this podcast is for you. So come join us to shift your consciousness. Okay, we are here for another podcast with an absolute superstar in the industry. Um, he is a health coach, a strength coach, and a health educator. He's uh, lucky enough to have been one of my mentors um, where at, from the very beginning in the functional medicine space. I wouldn't be where I am today without him. Um, we are joined here with Jake Dolishow. So great to have you here, mate. Thank you so much for having me. You guys don't know this. I This is the third time we tried this recording, this intro. I just kept <laughs> sabotaging it because I kept wanting to hear you say these nice things about me. So I figured third time lucky, we'll, we'll go with yeah. it. Yeah, I thought you were technology. Uh, so we'll do this for the third time. But, um, mate, we uh, we love to start it just knowing about your journey, uh, how you got to where you are. That'll obviously segue into where we want the conversation to go. But um, it's always nice to hear, the, hear people's journeys of how they got to where they are because it always tells a good story. Yeah, totally. And obviously different people have different journeys. And it is it is interesting to see this the entry point, I guess, to different people into this space. And a lot of the time there's commonalities of how people got into it, but then there's also, I guess, some unique differences. So for me, I don't want to bore you guys to death with my kind of entry story or origin story, but long story short, I came into it as a PT. Uh, and I was, I was sort of working in what I thought was one of the best gyms in the country, which I'd upheaved, is that the word? Whatever, uprooted my entire life and moved into state with two days notice to work in this gym. Um, and my idea was, hey, I just want to surround myself with the best coaches I can. I want to educate myself, learn from their experience. And it was, a, you know, it was an amazing opportunity. I had all these clients I was able to work with, able to work with people who've been in the industry for decades. But what I found was there was a lot of clients who just weren't really getting the results they wanted. Like mostly it was body composition goals, but they were doing everything perfectly and they had sort of maybe digestive symptoms or energy issues or just other health conditions going on. And it seemed like that was stopping them from getting where they wanted to get. And at that point in time, um, my my partner at the time, she was also being coached by one of the best coaches we know and we knew at the time and, and still one of the coaches I'd say is one of the best I know personally. And she wasn't able to get results. And for her, she'd had a long history of digestive issues and um, you know, IBS symptoms. And it just made me made us, I guess, think, you know what, there's more to this. You know, there's some people who there's something else happening here. Now, at that point in time, I was also lucky enough to to meet one of my mentors, a guy named David Ryan, and sat through this weekend course where this guy walked out, didn't have any notes, just had this big thing of butcher's paper and just didn't even introduce himself, right? Like Dave just walks out, stands in front of this board, 
doesn't say a word, just goes hematocrit. These are the optimal values for hematocrit. He didn't have any notes. And just like without stopping for like eight hours, he just starts going you know, every through every single blood marker on a blood test, optimal values off the top of his head, exactly what that marker means. And I was kind of just like mind blown. Like, what what is this? Like this is a different language. How does this guy know this stuff? So that led us down a path of, I guess, more functional medicine. We did some um, testing with my partner. She had uh, a parasite and a couple of other issues going on, so blastocystis. And that sort of opened my eyes to, oh, okay, there's a bit more happening here. And so I was lucky to then be able to start to, to dip my toe into that work with the clients I was working with um, and very quickly found that people were seeking us out as coaches, as you know, the best coaches or best gym in the area or in the country because they had tried everything and they couldn't get results. And so I went from a relatively new PT to suddenly my books were full and I had a waiting list because I became one of the coaches, only coaches who could actually work with these clients. Um, and then that evolved to a point where people are now coming to me. They didn't even really have fitness goals. They're just like, Hey, I've got, I've got IBS. I've got, you know, this autoimmune condition. And I heard that you were helping people. And I'm like, well, hang on. I thought I was just a PT and I don't really understand what's happening here, but okay, we'll go with it. Um, and then fast forward a few years, I kind of kept down that track and, and sort of started my own business after leaving that gym. Uh, and I guess I've segued a little bit more into like educating other people into that stuff as well. Uh, so I still work with clients. Uh, I think I said I was going to answer this quickly. I'm just going on and on. But keep going, mate. We love it. We love it. <laughs> One thing that I do think is is valuable, um, and I don't want to take away from like other people in this space, but there's a lot of really well, I guess, very knowledgeable people who you know they they understand the theory, they understand the research, but they maybe haven't worked that much with clients. And so sometimes you see this content out there on on social media and stuff, and it's like. That's interesting, but I don't know that it works or it may not work that well. And for me, I never wanted to be that person where I was removed from working with clients one and one. So I couldn't see what was working and what wasn't working. Because if you like, you know, if you look at research, it's like, okay, here's 50 things that could work for this issue. But how do we know which ones are the top 10? Or how do we know which is the, the two that we pull that and everything else follows? So as much as sometimes I've been tempted to maybe step out of coaching and just go into education, I'm kind of like, well, hang on, I need to have my finger on the pulse. Like I actually need to know what's still working and what's not working. Um, so that's where I am today. Yeah. Incredible, brother. Like it's it's fascinating to see where you started. It's pretty similar to where I started, except I had a whole lot of health issues myself. But um, just where you just the clients that were just coming to you and they weren't getting the results because they were you know, they were bloated, they had all these other symptoms and things, and there was just such more lower-hanging fruit that mm. needed to be addressed for them to feel better and to get the results in the gym because I started mm. the exact same place where a lot of us did, didn't we? We started yeah. gyms and and then we yeah wanted to dig deeper. So mm. It's so funny, man, when you were telling me about Dave um, because that's the exact, that's the exact experience <laughs> I had. I took my wife to see him. My partner, well, you know, she wasn't my wife at the time, but uh, she had such bad digestive issues. Walked into the room and Dave just starts like throwing all this information. Yeah. I'm like, what the hell is this? And that was my, that was my inspiration. So it's so funny. Yeah. And she had blasto too. So <laughs> hilarious. Um, but yeah, like you know, it's interesting. George talking about it's um, it's funny how some people from the gym, you know, and like yourself, we go from um, 
just wanting to help people get, you know, body composition goals and stuff like that. And then finding this passion to be like, hang on a second, like I actually, you know, this person's struggling with mental health issues or this person's struggling with digestive issues and I just don't have the skills to be able to help them. And what I've found along the journey, and I'm, I'm sure you're probably similar, is that, you know, there's always little things popping up that you can constantly learn. And I, I know for a fact that you are constantly educating yourself um, and getting better from learning from different mentors or doing different courses or going through different studies. Um, I'd love to go through like some of the stuff, some of the people you've learned from and and different modalities that you've found that has helped the most. Yeah. So I think you can't underestimate the impact of having good mentors in this space. And, and it's probably true for anything. Like I, I've taken this belief or this this way of thinking into kind of like everything else in life where, you know, a little while ago, I was, I was really getting into coffee. I don't know if you guys will laugh. Like, obviously, I talk about coffee a lot online. We've noticed. Yeah, you've noticed. I wasn't sure. I thought it was a bit of a secret. But, you know, I was getting into it. I'm like, you know what? I actually want to be good at making coffee. And I'm like, how do I learn? Ah, I know, mentor. So, I started like scouring, like, who who are the best sort of baristas in my area and, and you know, message one. Like, hey, I want you to teach me how to make coffee. And I'm like, why would I, why would I waste my time? trying to learn this skill when I can just go to someone who's one of the masters at it. And so I think that's something we should be applying just in all areas in life, um, but certainly in, in, you know, the context of health and fitness. So for me, again, you know, I started obviously being mentored by Dave, but what I always suggest to, you know, mentees or to clients or practitioners, I guess, is find the people who are doing the thing you want to do best. Right. So, and that could be multiple people. So, you know, for me, I was like, well, I want to be working with people with these digestive issues and health issues. And I want to be learning blood work. And, you know, for me, Dave was a person I could see who was doing that best. So I've been mentoring with Dave for, I don't know, the best part of a decade, whatever that is. And then I looked at, well, my other passion here is obviously the body composition side of things, hypertrophy training, um, exercise science. And so I tried to identify who's the person I can see who's doing this best. And there's several people I've learned from and, and you know, a couple of influential people, Stefan Kizolt uh, from Kilo Strength Society, uh, and then more recently over the last year to Chris Beardsley. And so those are people that I just looked at, I'm like, hey, you guys are, are doing stuff that either no one else is doing or your, your understanding is unrivaled. Um, and then, you know, the space we're in, like, uh, I would say that if we're working with you know, more serious athletes, like whether we like it or not, we probably need to have a decent understanding around anabolics. Um, and so there's, you know, mentors I've got who are more specialized simply in, in anabolics and PEDs. Um, and again, it's not a huge passion of mine, but if I want to be offering the best service I can to a client, it's stuff that we sort of need to know about. So that's really what I'd say is what are the, what are the key things that either you're, either you need to do your job well or that you're most passionate about and then just who can you see who's doing that the best? Um, and that, you know, I'm so grateful that I, I took that approach because it means that when you do work with clients who, you know, if maybe that's the first time you've worked with a client like that, or maybe there's an unforeseen hurdle that comes up and then you've got this team of mentors who've been doing this stuff for decades and you can be like, hey, I haven't seen this happen before. What do you think? And then like, well... I've seen this happen 20 times and this is what I think, you know, and it's, it just gives you the confidence not to, not to necessarily like work or practice outside of your, your, you know, knowledge level per se, but just to know that actually someone else has my back. And I think that that's a shift that's happened or that's, that's something we need to be um, conscious of that we all started out in gyms. Yeah. And when we started out in gyms, 
part of the beauty of being in a gym is you've got usually you've got mentors in that gym you might have like a, a pt manager whatever that is like for me the gym i was at you know we had education every week we had a meeting every week with this manager they go over our case studies and they were essentially mentors whereas now people aren't doing that people are now online people have never even been in a gym and they don't have anyone to do that with and i think what we need to be understanding what we i think the way we should think about it is in a gym you used to have to pay a percentage of your income to be in that gym yeah whether you pay a, you know a weekly fee you pay 20% of your whatever and part of that would cover a mentor and i think we should be looking at that the same way online we should say look I don't have to pay rent for being online, but the rent that I have to pay is to have someone who's who's got my back, someone in my corner who I can actually utilize to to deliver the best service I can to clients. So I think if you're a coach or practitioner listening to this, I'd encourage you, hey, it's great that you can be online, you can save overheads, that's really good, but I think you should take a little bit of that money you're saving and you should invest in a mentor because it's it's you're going to see that, the the value of that in your client experience and results and in your own business anyway. One hundred percent. Such a good point. Even like to add on to that, like you know, we're co- we're colleagues as well. Like we're all working in the same space, and if you've got the right mindset, some people can be competitive about it, or we can mm. work to all be better as coaches. And yeah. good example recently is um, me and Jordan have been learning off a guy called uh, Dr. Stuart Gillespie at the moment. And Geordie came across him from a guy called Daniel Kirkbride. And then Jordan spread that message to me and said, you know, we need to like, we should all try and learn from this guy. And that's, that makes us better, like makes the whole industry better. And it makes mm. us better as individual coaches as well to be learning from these people. It's just different outlooks as well. Cause like there's so many different outlooks in the functional medicine space. And I love to just get the good from everywhere and, um, and bring it all together. And I'm sure you're the same, Jake, could be even with, with bodybuilding and all these different methods and ways of doing things and seeing things. And I think it's, you know, I'll, I'll always have someone in my corner that I can go to because I just think mm-hmm. it's important. And I think it's important that we, like I'm seeing a lot of the other emerging health coaches. And I want to, I want to do the same. Like I want to support mm-hmm. that, you know, our you know community of health coaches because it's only going to benefit the rest of uh, society. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, just look at the stats of how many people are unwell in society arguably what 50 percent or more we don't need to compete you know there's more than Mm. enough people who need our help so it is yeah it is odd that there does there does seem to be like a spirit of of competition or or competitiveness amongst i guess the online space today and it's like well hang on why are we doing this but no one wins when when you do that you know back in the day you used to love it like there'd be coaches who again you know i'd look at these guys and men like these are the best coaches i know of and you email them or you message them and they'd reply they'd be like hey you know this is like this is my advice or whatever it's like people weren't guarded and i feel like now there's there is uh, some people are not and i feel like some people are quite guarded it's like well hang on we are kind of all in this together like we're all moving towards the same goal why do we have to do that mm-hmm. yeah it's a bit of like almost tall poppy syndrome or yeah like competitiveness insecurity insecurity mm-hmm. oh, like, yeah Mm. And like spiritually, I think that like I just think that's <laughs> on a yeah, spiritual level. I feel like that's not bringing in nice karma. You know what I mean? Like, mm. yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I think it's going to reflect in your services a little bit too. But you know, I I I don't have any sort of issue referring out if I need to or saying hey, like to my client. I think I need to ask like Jake on this or Stu or you know. And get that kind of advice if I'm stuck on something. Yeah, I've had a few. Yeah. I've had a fair few people where I've been like, oh, I don't think I'm the man for you, but I'll put you yeah. on the Dave. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, no, cool. So, like, something that we wanted to go into a little bit today with you is like blood analysis. You know, why is it why is it important for people to be getting their bloods done? So, I mean, there's so many different ways we could answer that. Um, and I guess it depends on on who we're talking to. You know, are we talking to someone who's who's got a body composition goal? Are we talking to someone who's just like wanting to age well? Are we talking to someone who's an athlete? Like, you know, it totally depends in kind of what their personal goals are. But for someone who's a coach, if we've got a client, and regardless of what that client's goals is, we've got a client who walks in the door. It's almost like like if you you can do an assessment you can get them to do a movement assessment you can do a symptom assessment and that stuff's all good but then you got to put together the plan and for me like there'd be times in in the past few years where maybe i'd get a, a client working with me and i wouldn't have bloods and it didn't have happen often but sometimes and i'd sit there trying to put together a plan i'm like what am i what, what am i meant to base this on like how do i possibly come up with a plan if i don't actually know what's going on and so what blood work enables us to do is simply like look under the hood we're just checking exactly and obviously there's there's nuance and there's um you know we're getting a snapshot in time but it allows us to really get a picture now in like right now of kind of what is your body perceiving going on you know what is the current state of health and they'll give us indications into either deficiencies going on obviously we're not going to see every single nutrient but we'll see from a, a more macro level other deficiencies does your body think that there's an inflammatory response going on or immune response going on is the liver burden going on it just tells us kind of what what's your foundation what's your starting point and then like as a coach we can take that it's like okay well, already I know your body thinks this is happening. Already I know that there's some inputs going in that's causing an inflammatory response. We probably don't want to add fuel to that fire. Like we probably need to pull you back a little bit. Or, okay, I can see that your diet's insufficient. You know, we can see you're under-consuming protein and you're under-consuming B vitamins and zinc and iron, whatever else. So as a coach, it literally just gives us a starting point. Like without that, we're like, okay, let's just throw a dart at the board and hope we're kind of there and let's just go from there and see what happens. Whereas with blood, it's like, well, we kind of at least know this is where you're starting. So I think that's why as coaches, we should be interested in it. I think as as individuals, as clients, like most health issues aren't just going to pop up overnight. You know, often I get people coming to me and like, oh, you know, I've got this health issue, like, it, you know, sort of came on out of nowhere. I've got like joint pain or I'm not sleeping anymore, migraines or this skin issue. And then we identify some issues and they're like, it can't be that. Like, it can't be what I'm eating. I've been eating that way for 10 years. It's like, okay, great. But you understand that what you've been doing up until now has led to that point. So the reality is the the motion is in place. Like, things are, are set in motion that's going to lead to our health outcomes tomorrow and next week and next year. And our choice, the two options we've got is, well, we can wait until those things pop up or we can start to get an early indication you know, lo and behold, preventative medicine, which arguably doesn't really exist, like no one's actually doing that. But that's an opportunity for us to actually identify some of these issues before they pop up. So I think people should be interested for their own health. But as coaches, it's like, man, how do you even do your job without this information? Mm, seriously. Yeah, and I I tend to think like and like a lot of people, and you probably notice this when you read like read bloods or the like the customers always looking at things in isolation. Like they yeah. always look at like a one blood marker's out and they're they're not actually looking at 
what are the different patterns. And this is, the, I think, the hard thing for coaches is knowing who to go to to learn about uh, interpreting bloods yeah. because there's nuances and there's there's also patterns that maybe aren't clear in literature that some people are able to teach to give us a really, really good insight. Um, so, yeah. And I know, like, obviously, you um, you you um, go through patterns to be able to find out what could be going on with people's gut. You know, you've got different markers that you would paint together that would um, then tell people things that a doctor could never, ever see on your bloods. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And that's without even speaking into, like, doctors, right? Like, they're looking through not optimal ranges. They're looking at societal norm ranges, which we know 50 to 60% of the human race is obese and overweight, at least in Australia and the US anyway. And so it doesn't leave a whole lot of healthy people <laughs> that, that are probably getting their bloods done and then they're basing those stats or those ranges off. So, yeah, it's wild. Mm. Um, I'd love to go uh, like further into, and I was trying to segue a little bit into the, like the gut stuff and, um, you know, how you've um, obviously evolved your practice. Um, and it, like did you – you know, when you first started and you were with like the the bodybuilding um, people, did were you um, were you finding like just amazing results with just being able to uh, clear up people's ga- gastrointestinal symptoms, being able to see like people go from possibly having something like SIBO, or leaky gut, struggling to put on muscle, to then fixing like a digestive issue in you know eight twelve weeks, and then seeing like phenomenal results. It's a funny one because it could kind of go either way. So sometimes you'd have clients where, you know, whatever they're doing wasn't working body comp wise. And then you almost don't, you almost de-emphasize it. Like, look, we're just going to keep that kind of going along. We're not going to do anything crazy from a training perspective or dieting perspective. And we're just going to deal with the obvious stuff happening within your gut. Um, you know, whether that's SIBO or Candida or whatever it might be. And then. You know, maybe half of those clients suddenly they're like, I haven't changed what I'm eating. I'm still eating the same amount of food. I'm still doing the same exercise and I'm just getting leaner and leaner and leaner. Like they're just looking better. Um, and they're like, what's going on? This is magic. And it's like, well, ob- honestly, like my input there or my sort of assumption is realistically, you're probably feeling better. And if you're feeling better, energy expenditure is going up, like you're going to sleep better. If sleep is better, blood sugar management is going to be better. If blood sugar management is better, you're moving more. Like, you know, look at someone on concrete, like someone a couple of weeks out of getting on stage, how much energy are they burning? Like none. They're sitting there with a jump on, they're talking slow, they're not using their hands, like they're not moving, right? It's kind of like that. It's like, well, if you just, if if you're in this like internal state of holy crap, there's like a fire going on. Like, I don't want to like make this worse. Your body's going to slow everything down. And so I think a lot of the time that's what's happening is we're just enabling you to feel better and then everything just follows on from there. But then sometimes you get clients with like, oh, I can't lose weight. I can't, like nothing's working. They've got really obvious digestive issues. And a lot of the time what I would notice is these would be clients who've dieted themselves into a hole. You know, they come to you on like 1,150 calories or 1,200 calories. They're doing 12, 14,000 steps a day. And you're like, okay, look, there's obviously these, you know, candida issues or whatever it might be. Let's deal with that. And you start dealing with it and the feeling better, but like, I'm not losing weight. Nothing's happening body compromised. And I think we have to understand that sometimes people will purely respond well when we deal with the gut. And again, I think it's because they're just generally feeling better, moving more, energy's better. But it's also not like a magic tool that suddenly means your baseline, you know, maintenance calories are going to go up a thousand calories just because we dealt with your gut. More often than not, what I'd say is the reality is that's now enabling us to get you back to a normal kind of baseline. So now we can do the reverse diet well, or now we can 
you know, start to pare back your excessive exercise and your excessive walking and everything else, you should respond okay to that. And now we can go again. So it ends up being, hey, we can get you there, but it's going to be like a six month thing instead of, oh, it just happened overnight. So that's usually what I would find. Um, like one, people would fall into one of those two camps and obviously people would be happier to fall into the first one, but that's not always the case, especially if someone's really gone very hard, extreme for a few years. Um, but sometimes it's hard to predict as well. You know, sometimes someone will just drop weight <laughs> once they start doing, you know, antimicrobials and gut protocol. It's like, hey, you know, they'll think you're like a magician. It's like, well, it kind of is magic, to be honest. Like you're you're eating more food, you're moving less and you're dropping body fat. Like we should celebrate that when that happens. But it's not always a norm, is it? No, no. That, well, that was me, man. Like, and I remember sending you um, progress pictures to you. And I'm like, bro, this is insane. I'm, I'm mm. shredded. I'm like, I'm lifting like, I think it was like, I was benching like 1.6 times my body weight. Like, and I was, I was shredded. Like, it was just insane. Like, I was like, I've never been that strong before whilst also looking so ripped and <laughs> like, that's the thing that that yeah. always happens like that even if someone's body can't be slow to respond we should be able to get that person performing the best i've ever performed in the gym um, mm. and so at the very least what i'd say is look if if body comp is not responding acutely the way we wanted to let's change our focus initially let's focus on performance because that's going to go through the roof like that is just going to exponentially increase and then We've got that as a baseline for when we can now pull those cards and we can, you know, put you into a bigger deficit and we can create more energy expenditure. You've got a really good starting point then. Mm, and then with great. people, like people, like a lot of people don't know, like with microbial Im um, imbalances or overgrowth like SIBO, you're creating a lot of lactate. And then that that's obviously going to inhibit um, uh, your training and your hypertrophy training so I, sometimes i think about these bodybuilders and stuff like that doing like high repetition high volume training and they're most likely got SIBO i'm wondering how they're getting through day to day is that um mm. does that pop up a, a little bit for you as well like people are just struggling with exercise tolerance yeah yeah absolutely and i think the the biggest issue there is usually going to be the results that they're seeing so people can people can push hard and they can push through discomfort and and you know more often than not they'll be doing these high volume training plans but they're not getting results you know they're not building muscle not getting stronger whatever um and you know like you said there's going to be excessive waste products from potential bacterial issues they're producing more of those waste products and metabolites with the type of training they're doing probably a bigger concern even because metabolites like they they affect you in the moment, but they don't necessarily cause like a, a big recovery demand after that session, right? So yes, it, it might be a bit of an effect there, but the bigger one for me would be inflammation. And if you've got someone who's got higher levels of baseline inflammation, higher levels of interleukin-6, maybe they've got more like bacterial overgrowth, negative gram bacteria, well, that's the same signaling molecule that's going to, to essentially trigger central nervous system fatigue for muscle damage. So if we do a very muscle damaging exercise or workout, the following day, we've actually got a, a reduction in our ability to recruit our muscles. And so someone's baseline is, is a high level of inflammation anyway, because they've got these bacterial issues going on, and then they're causing more muscle damage. The question would be, well, how well is your next session going to go? And then the session after that, and the session after that. And if you're constantly unable to actually access that that top, you know, couple percentage of those muscle fibers, what are called high threshold motor units. They're the ones that have the, the highest ability to change, the highest ability to grow. So basically, you're just always perpetually unable to actually utilize 
the, the muscle fibers you're trying to hypertrophy. So you're just not really going to get anywhere. And that brings me back to what I just said a moment ago. It's like, well, if we if we acknowledge that and we put somebody who's on a gut protocol on what I would say is a more intelligently designed program, what they're going to notice is they're seeing results they've just never seen before. Strength is just going to go through the roof. Muscle gain is going to go through the roof. That might not necessarily translate to body fat loss at that point in time, but absolutely their performance is going to be the best it's ever been. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting, like with this um, interleukin-6 um, inflammatory cytokine. So you, are you saying that like things like LPS, like alcetaldehyde, uh, things that drive that, or is it mainly just LPS? It's mainly going to be LPS, which is going to have a bigger effect on interleukin-6. Um, so like from an exercise perspective, it's once we've, we've damaged that muscle, that tissue essentially leaches out um, the compound to increase interleukin-6, right? So when there's a higher concentration of interleukin-6 in the blood, that essentially gets picked up or, or um, I guess, identified neurologically. And so that will then cause reduction in central in, in mode energy treatment or what I guess we would call central nervous system fatigue. So regardless of where that IL-6 is coming from, it's likely that is going to cause that CNS fatigue mechanism. Yeah, interesting. Because, like, we, we've, we've been learning recently as well, haven't we, uh, Marcus, mm. about interleukin-6 and even... Um, the neuro connection with the way that increases as well, like just from stress and or trauma mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. emotions. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Cool. So, um, what else, man? Like, um, in terms of like uh, other things that I guess we can explore. Um, one of the big things that obviously we've learned a lot about from 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 you, what I've learned from you, is obviously the gut realms. So let's segue maybe into like this LPS thing, this bacterial overgrowth thing. Like what, what is all this about? Yeah. So, I mean, people have probably heard of SIBO by now. So SIBO being small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and it kind of, you know, got a lot of limelight over the last few years or maybe, maybe a decade ago and up until the last few years. And that's just one form of dysbiosis, just one, one type of gut issue. And I actually think that a lot of the time, labeling things in my opinion i don't think is super helpful so like i don't particularly use the language of SIBO with my clients um i might say sometimes it'll be like kind of obviously that's almost certainly what it is so sometimes I, I might say things like look really it does kind of look like SIBO like this is kind of what we would classically call it but to me it doesn't matter because all we're saying is a imbalance or an overgrowth of bacteria in a small intestine ultimately where it shouldn't be right and we can have an overgrowth of bacteria in other places you know where SIBO is literally just like a locational term we're just saying this is where we think it is you know it's like well what if it's not there but it's the same type of bacteria elsewhere it's not SIBO but it's still causing the same issues right so I think Sometimes as practitioners, we can get caught up in like diagnosing and that's, I don't feel like that's particularly helpful language. And especially when we then understand that most of these things don't exist in isolation. Like if we're looking at, again, let's say SIBO as an example, like what is SIBO? It's an imbalance in bacteria. Like I said, it's an overgrowth of certain types of bacteria in the small intestine. It can be in different parts of the small intestine, the top part, the bottom part. Um, and ultimately, why does that occur? Well, usually there's going to be low levels of good bacteria. There might be an overgrowth of bad bacteria. Like this simply just an imbalance. And do we think that if there's an imbalance in good and bad, very basically speaking, good and bad bacteria, is it likely there's going to be other imbalances as well? Is it likely there's going to be an imbalance in, in yeast? You know, obviously we do want some yeast, 
but could it potentially be that if we're missing good bacteria, maybe more yeast is going to proliferate? We know that there's a big link. If there's more yeast, yeast essentially enables certain characteristics of stuff like H. pylori. We know that H. pylori and SIBO have a big link as well. So suddenly what we start seeing is people might have maybe more dominant SIBO symptoms, but they've kind of also got some yeast symptoms or maybe they've got some H. pylori symptoms. You know, a lot of people do have parasites. Parasites aren't always going to be pathogenic, not always going to be symptomatic, but suddenly now these people have these symptoms that are pointing to parasites. And suddenly we just have this like melting pot of like, you kind of got some yeast stuff going on. You got some bacterial stuff going on. You're getting heaps of UTIs that's usually caused by E. coli, negative gram bacteria. So you got bacterial stuff there. And it, I don't think it necessarily serves anyone to say, oh, your issue is SIBO. It's like, no, no, your issue is all of that. Like your issue is you're missing good stuff. You've got too much bad stuff. Like there's a lot of inflammation permeability going on. That's not enabling your gut to kind of self-regulate. And so that's the stuff I think we need to be aware of is this sort of connection between all of these things together. I think the beauty there then is taking more of like a, I guess like a generalized approach where it's like, well, say someone just had parasites. What we do is going to be different to someone just had SIBO. Like look at this, a classic antiparasitic protocol. Okay, let's use black walnut and sweet wormwood or mosaputica. What are you going to do if it's SIBO? Oh, use berberine and use allicin, use oregano. It's like, okay, but what if it's both? Or what if it's yeast? So I actually think where the magic is a lot of the time is saying, look, there's obviously dysbiosis going. Obviously, there's an imbalance here. It looks like it's shifted a little bit more towards X. Maybe there's more likely a little bit more bacteria as the issue. But as a whole, we can assume the whole thing is kind of, uh, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a dog's breakfast. Like it's all a bit out. So maybe a better approach here is let's use some more safeguard things that are kind of going to be beneficial regardless, right? I think there's a lot of probiotics that fall into that category. I think things like curcumin fall into that category. Colostrum falls into that category. Um, you know, there's some interesting research combining things like curcumin and, and um, boswellia. And so I think that's an approach that makes a lot more sense to me is let's not sort of identify, demonize one thing. Like, let's just look at your gut as a whole and how do we just start to push it in the right direction? And then what we can do, let's say we get four, eight, 12 weeks into that. And it's like, okay, you've now really got obvious symptoms of one thing. Maybe that's yeast or maybe that's, you know, whatever it might be, H. pylori. Okay, maybe now we kind of specialize and now we target that. But a lot of the time what we'll find is if you just take this more generalized approach, kind of everything gets a bit better. If everything is better, we, we don't need to take that really specific targeted approach. Yeah. It's so funny. I actually remember, and I might butcher this quote. It's interesting, the generalized uh, thing, because I, I see that in clients. Like, I'll be like, how can I sit here? And although I might see SIBO in the bloods, how can I sit here and say there's no yeast? And how can I sit here and say there's no H. pylori? Because if the environment's there for that, for SIBO, the environment's there for yeast and H. pylori. But one thing like, and you'll get a lot of questions I see on your Instagram being like, can you help with this disease or can you help with this disease? And I remember you answering the question like, I don't necessarily, don't quote me on this, but I think you said, I don't help you with the disease. I get you better on a cellular level and then that fixes that issue is that i feel like that's something you've said before yeah totally so like you know i think back to the most complex cases i've had 
And, you know, there's some where you look at it and it's like, man, you just got like everything possible going on and you've got like hormonal issues going on as well. And you've got like, like I've had clients where, you know, they can't get out of bed, they can't go outside, they can't see like sunlight will like destroy them. Like they'll get instant migraines um, and, you know, literally can't eat anything. Like they'll be eating like an elemental diet. And then I look at someone like that and it's like, for me, I don't feel like my job is to find the root cause. I don't feel like I need to, you know, dig deeper and and uncover everything and be like, you know what, the one issue for you is mold. It's like, no, no, no. Like maybe like there might be specific infections, sure. But looking at someone like that, it's like, if we don't know where to start, let's just look at the blood work. And if we can get you internally functioning better, it is impossible you're not going to feel better, right? So for me, a metric, like a, a, a metric of success there would be simply, okay, you had 40 blood markers that were just completely out of where I want to see them sitting. If I can get that to 20 and then I can get that to 10, at a certain point, your body is going to function better. And you might not necessarily feel it immediately. Sometimes people will. But sometimes people will be like, yeah, kind of feeling a little bit better. I can kind of do stuff I couldn't used to do. And I'm like, okay, great. That's that's the trajectory we want. Let's see how you feel 12 weeks from now, or six months from now. And sometimes it's kind of like you just need your body to be working properly again. And then six months later, like, I just I just keep feeling better and better and better. It wasn't this, like, overnight thing. It's like, I'm just gradually getting better. And then you speak to someone, like, a year later, it's like, I'm working full-time now and I'm able to do X, Y, Z, you know? So, yeah, like exactly what you said there, Marcus. I think it's like, well, if we can just shift our focus instead of, like, trying to identify the enemy to let's get you functioning better as a human, we just need to acknowledge it, like, ultimately, as a human – you know, what are we? We're just made up of cells and and tissue. And if we can get those cells and that tissue working well, it's impossible. You're not going to be functioning better as a human. Mm. And and I like, and this is a big thing, like you just said then, 12 weeks, six months, a year. A lot of the time, and you'll know this, like, like you said a little bit earlier on, like your issues start, like, yes, you've got symptoms of your issue now, but you might've had 20 years of abusing yeah. yourself before that. And like we'd love to get, you know, you would love to fix it in 12 weeks, but, you know, sometimes it can take up to a year. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes the rest took took me a good three years to recover mm. from the mast cell activation issues and histamine issues that I had. Mm. And um, you, you would have, uh, you were right in the corner for most of that, Jake. It was a fucking lengthy process with some massive downing moments. And so it's never linear, that's for sure. And um, and yeah, but um. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think the one thing that I got from that too is like taking a holistic approach, right? Like it's not just the diet, the supplements. It's also, yeah, like improving things like your lymphatic function or, you know, moving more, improving your sleep. And you're not, you know, if you, if you, if you go through all those kind of hierarchy of needs, I guess, is what, of what it takes for your body to be more healthy, it's going to be impossible for you not to feel better. Like, as you said. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, no, it's awesome. Good stuff. Cool. <laughs> I thought you were about to ask another question then. So, Jake, I want to um, I want to move further into like the blood work and and gut stuff. Um, so, are, are we able to go through like some of the stuff that um you're looking for when we're looking for bacterial overgrowth, when we're looking for yeast overgrowth, parasites, um, and just some of the patterns that you might that might pop up if you have SIBO or pop up if you have leaky gut. Mm. You mentioned before, like not looking at one mark in isolation. And that's so, firstly, we, we need to do that. We need to not look at one mark in isolation. But secondly, what we need to do is understand we need to look at blood markers in the context of that person, 
right? So sometimes the issue with patterns, and this is hard stuff to, to teach, is we might say, okay, X issue often has X and you know Y markers elevated. And then suddenly someone sees those markers elevated, they're like, okay, it must be that issue, it must be SIBO, it must be yeast, whatever. And it's like, yeah, but what are all the things that could cause those two markers to be elevated? And then what's most likely for that person? And so I think the the way we should be dealing with blood work and approaching it, and I would really encourage people if you are learning blood work, <laughs> I know this is contradictory to what I said before. Initially, I'd say, I actually think most people shouldn't learn blood work, in all honesty, because it's not something you're going to get good at with a weekend seminar or even with a 12-week course or mentoring or whatever, right? Like, it's stuff that you need, to, honestly, to spend years on. And it's, you know, I've been, I would do some form of learning around blood work most days of my life, and I've been doing this for years now, and I'm still learning heaps, and, then, you know, there's still heaps to learn. So unless it's something you want to be like one of your core things, I, I think it's always good to have a basic understanding, but you're probably never going to really grasp it to the point that it's going to, you're going to really get the answers out of it that you're looking for. So I think people need to really ask themselves, how good do I want to be at this? Because unless I actually want to be good, then it might be better to, to have someone in your corner who maybe does specialize a little bit more in that. And that, you know, we don't all need to specialize in the same things, right? So that's just a bit of a side tangent. But the way I'd sort of encourage people to look at blood is the first question is, what are the, the possibilities for those markers to be out? So let's use the example of um, you asked about SIBO. So with SIBO, and like, so for me, I guess, I don't know what I'd call myself. I, I, I want my recommendations or my beliefs to be rooted in some form of evidence. Um, and for me, as far as the, the hierarchy of evidence, I do place anecdote relatively low on that. Um, and as far as like blood work education, I'm because blood work is so well validated, we've got you know thousands of, of research articles on it. Most things we should be able to point to some evidence. And so unless something has some basis in evidence, there's few sort of blood work beliefs that I'm happy to hold without any evidence for it. There's some that honestly I've just seen so many times anecdotally that even if there isn't evidence, it's something I still acknowledge and hold on to. But I would I would say that, right? I'm not going to teach it and say, this is this. I'm going to say, I've seen this happen. It's not supported by literature at this point, but it just feels like something I, I can't deny. Um and I say that because we need to acknowledge that a lot of like testing and a lot of stuff that is taught is not actually that evidence-based. And even if we talk about SIBO and we look at SIBO testing, we look at SIBO breath testing, I mean, there's mm -hmm. there's research articles now that say actually every single test, every single study based on a lactose breath test, every single result should just be thrown out the window. It's useless. Mm -hmm. And it's tricky for us because we're like, well, a lot of this, the research we've used has been based on lactose breath testing. So do we do away with all of that research? Like we really have to take it with a, a pinch of salt. So what we do know as far as SIBO goes is we are generally going to see deficiencies. So we might see things like MCV elevated, mean capacity or volume, which is a, an indication of sort of a larger volume of red blood cells, which is generally an indication of B12 and B9 issues. We might see things like alkaline phosphatase low. Alkaline phosphatase is a zinc-dependent liver enzyme, so usually will correlate with low zinc. So those would be two two common patterns or two common markers we'll see out with SIBO as an example. And so then someone sees MCV high, ALP low, and like, ah, SIBO, 
Mm. I'm like, yeah, cool. But what were the other possibilities? Well, where did we get B12? Only found in animal products. Where did we get zinc? Mostly in animal products. What if your client doesn't have digestive symptoms, but they are also vegan? Like, what's more likely that they've got SIBO or that they're just not eating a lot of zinc and B12? Mm. So this is a danger with patterns is sometimes we're just linearly looking at it and say, well, black and white fit in that, therefore it's that. It's like, well, no, 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 no. What are the possible explanations for that marker? What's the likelihood of your client? You know, like creatinine, I love using that as an example because creatinine linearly goes up with muscle mass. And so you've got an 80-year-old vegan grandmother who's got high creatinine or high or high normal even, still within optimal values. And you look at it like, does that make sense for that person? Probably not. You know, mm. dehydration, what's going on? But then you've got someone who's, you know, 120 kilo bodybuilder who's relatively lean and their creatinine might be elevated. And you look at that like, is that an issue? I don't think so. They just have a stack of muscle. So sometimes even looking at stuff within optimal values will let us down because the individual will be an individual. They're not going to necessarily fall within within those ranges. So we need to Mm -hmm. ask ourselves, what are the possibilities? Of those possibilities, what is the probability? What's the the highest likelihood here? So, okay, MCV is high, LP is low. Maybe we're seeing some other deficiencies. Iron, I wouldn't say is as common. Like an iron deficiency is not quite as common as CBO. Like it may still present itself, but I think the B vitamins and zinc is is a little bit more common. Maybe we'll see issues around amino acids. Again, probably not quite as common. Like really B12 is going to be a big one because bacteria does compete for absorption of B12. So we're generally going to see B12 low. We may not see folate low. That one's a little bit more questionable. So arguably you could say an obvious B12 deficiency, maybe B9 looks satisfactory, but again, it could sometimes be low, but maybe it's looking okay. We're seeing zinc low. This is one of those things where I'd say personally, anecdotally, I feel like I see GGT low a lot of the time with people who have SIBO, but we don't have any literature to support that. And I'd say GGT, honestly, is one of the markers we have the, the least amount of evidence on anyway, especially when it's low. There's very little research around low GGT. I think we need you and Dave to like fund a study on GGT, on low GGT. We need someone to sponsor you so we can actually prove this. <laughs> it, it would be very, I'm just waiting for the day. Like every now and then I'll go back. Like, is there any more research in GGT? And I'll be looking up stuff and, and just nothing's coming up. Like I know that it's going to be there eventually, but it's not. It's not there yet. Um, but you know, those, those are the things I'd be looking for. Um, and then, so then we want to look at symptoms and be like, okay, so this pattern's come up and it looks like SIBO or could look like SIBO. There's obviously other things that could explain each one of those, but what's this person look like? And the person has ticks, can't eat onion and I can't eat garlic and I've got loose stools and sometimes I'm constipated. It's like, well, do we actually need to look further? Why would I order a breath test for you, a breath test that has low accuracy anyway? You've got all these FODMAP sensitivities. You've got these unexplained deficiencies. You're eating well. You don't have disordered eating. You're not a vegan. You've still got low B12. You've still got low zinc. To me, that's like, well, I'm not going to diagnose you as SIBO, but it's pretty, like, it's looking fairly obvious that there's a bacterial issue there. Yep. You know what mm. I mean? So... That's that's the danger with patterns is we need to acknowledge the person in front of us. And if we look at yeast, what do we normally see with yeast? Like you mentioned acetaldehyde before. The question is, and this is this is largely mechanistic explanations. Okay, so there's not a lot of there's not a lot of studies where they'll be like we identified forty people with candida and then we assess the blood work against optimal values. Like those things don't exist, right? So we really are having to extrapolate. And this is where 
mistakes are made. So, you know, a common example like I'd give here would be like parasites. So it's a classic pattern that's taught. Eh, I've got, I've got like all these competing ideas and I want to like try to bring them together. So I love it. I mentioned, <laughs> I mentioned earlier about, um, about sort of people who, who maybe are educators in this space and maybe don't work a lot hands on with clients. I think this is an example of where that has led us down a wrong path. Cause if you go online and if you listen to people educate about parasites and blood work, you guys tell me, what are you going to hear? What, what patterns indicate parasites? Higher zonophils is what a lot of people say. That's the biggest one. Okay, let's go with that. Higher zonophils. If we actually look at the so, next question to you is: is if we're dealing with clients with parasites, what kind of parasites do we normally see? Uh, blasto. blasto. Well, you, you've got um, dentamoeba, protozoal parasites, and then there's protozoa. Great. Right. Okay, so mm. dentamoeba, blasto. These are protozoan parasites. Yeah. Mm. These are the types of parasites that are more likely. So that the opposite of protozoa would be like a worm. Yeah. Um, so protozoa parasites are the th- things we're normally dealing with. These are the things more likely to cause digestive symptoms, right? So mechanistically, eosinophils being high with parasites, it makes sense to someone has worms, right? But if someone's got a protozoa parasite infection, if you look at the literature, about 10% of the time, eosinophils will be elevated. So if you're a practitioner working with someone who's got blasto, let's say you, I mean, how often do you get someone walking your door diagnosed with blasto? Like, couple times a year, a few times, let's say five, okay? It, that means in two years, you'll get 10 clients who have blasto, one of them might have high eosinophils. Is that an accurate market to work off? No, not at all. I mean, how often do you have someone who's got asthma or childhood asthma or mold or allergies? That's much higher likelihood of high eosinophils. And yet what's happened is people have taken that mechanism in literature. They're not really seeing it with clients because it doesn't exist with clients and they're teaching it. And so that's where I think the issue is, is once you start working, like I remember seeing that pattern, people are teaching it. I'm like, man, I guess it's true. And then I start looking at clients who are diagnosed, who've done PCR testing and blastos, you know, showing up and I'm never seeing Sonophil's eye. Like Mm, what's going on? Doesn't make sense. Exactly. So it's being taught ultimately, I guess, by people who, who simply aren't doing the testing. So I don't know what led me on that tangent. Um, no, it's good because we're, we're cool. like we. This is good, mate, because we're getting into your getting into your brain and talking about the nuances in blood work that people really need to understand. Um, and that's why I love how you go about it. Like you're not. And when I was first learning blood work from Dave, like I was very black and white with the way I was thinking and things. And it wasn't until I evolved my thinking when I worked, like I did like Brian Walsh's course where I started to see more possibilities Mm -hmm. because obviously with Dave, it's more like gut related. Then I saw other possibilities, broaden my ability to interpret bloods. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people need to start with the black and white. I think that's a really viable place to start. Um, And, you know, you mentioned, we've said a couple of times now, don't treat an individual marker. While I totally agree with that, I think the individual market is not like, uh, you know, people ask me questions like, what do I do with my irons like 11? Stuff divino, what's your ferritin? What's your hemoglobin? What do you want blood cells? I don't know. Yeah. But at the same time, I think y- you, you almost can't go wrong if you treat the marker. So again, to go back to my point before, I'm like, our goal is not necessarily to, the issue with root cause medicine is you're assuming you know every single possible root cause in the world and no one does. And so if you can think of, you can fathom 30 root causes, unless it's one of those 30, 
you're stuffed. You can't work it out. So what are you going to do? You're going to say it's one of those 30 and then it's not going to work, right? And then you learn another one. You learn 31. Okay, oh, it must be that one. So I think root cause medicine fundamentally is flawed. And so as a starting point, if you don't know what to do, treat the marker. You see MCV high, what have they most likely got? Probably got some B vitamin issues. You see LP low, what have they most likely got? Got some zinc issues. You see GGT excessively high, what's probably going on? Glutathione issues, oxidative stress. So I think while it's like demonized, people are like, oh, don't treat the marker. You've got to look at the person as a whole. Yeah, look at the person as a whole. But if you get those markers looking better, how do you think the person's going to feel? So I think the black and white has a time and place. And I think that's a good starting point. But then to really evolve it to the next level, it's like, man, we need to understand so much nuance here. And like you said, it's not just markers. Like iron's a really good example here. It's like look at an iron studies. How often do you see elevated iron, serum iron high, like all the freaking time? And the first question I'll ask is when was the blood test done? Like I'll get a practitioner who'll send me bloods as a case study. Look at the iron levels. I've got hemochromatosis. Like, yeah, but what was the timestamp on that study? on that test. Oh, I'll go ask. They send me the report, you know, test was done 11.30 in the morning. I'm like, when do you reckon that person ate last? Oh, I'll ask him. Well, they ate last 6 p.m. It's like, well, what's that? Like 16 hours or something? Like, what do you think the iron state is going to look like 16 hours fasting? We know that after 10 to 12 hours, serum iron like steadily increases. If you look at the data on people who are, who are um, diagnosed with excessive iron, majority of those people are faster longer than 12 hours. They're falsely diagnosed. So now we've got a problem of, we don't want to look at, an, at a mark in isolation, but we also need to look at all the possibilities, but we also need to look at the context of that that test was done and what have they done? Did they train before? You know, like there's, yeah. there's so much nuance there. Yeah. So that's what I mean when I'm like, unless you want to be, if you want this to tell you the whole story, you need to spend a lot of time doing it. If you want blood to tell you the starting point and how to just begin with a client, that's okay. We can get you there relatively easily. But to then use bloods as like the sole test you're using to sort of see what's going on, like that takes a lot of time. Yeah. Something I got out of all that as well is like not, you know, so that, that's why sometimes with a lot of our clients is doing that safeguard option initially first, like you said, whether it is working on nutrient deficiencies or just repairing their environment inside their gut, whether it's the epithelium and their leaky gut issues, right? Rather than going, you've got a parasite, we're going to do a parasite detox. And like, and you see a lot of that going on out there. People shitting out parasites and everyone's like, oh, obviously you've got a parasite. And like all this kind of like- And what are they using a lot of the time? Most of Pudica, which is like seeds and the seeds are going to look like parasites in the stool. (laughs) I didn't know that. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the liver flukes and all the stuff that people go, oh, I must have them. Yeah. So I still always, always in my protocols, it's like the foundational stuff first about you know looking after mm-hmm. the um looking after the gut structure and and nutrient deficiencies. And I wouldn't mind segueing into like supplementation, Jake, because um you know there's and we talked to Kyle Vanderlees about like the quality and stuff, but I say, I think some people can be really like um negative about using. Um, a lot of supplements or not using enough supplements and i don't know if you've ever um felt like you see that in the realm in the health realms where you know it can be a bit of a thought of negatively if you use a lot of supplements at one time um and i'd just love to go into how you use them yourself yeah yeah i mean supplements are such a massive part of this and like you said they're often demonized and then sometimes people just go over the top and it's like kind of where's the sweet spot Mm. and i think 
like it's probably an unpopular thing or belief to hold, but I think that the reality is for most people, diet and lifestyle alone probably isn't enough to fix the health. And at least that's my opinion. And I think that once you are like at a state of health, diet and lifestyle is going to be enough to sustain and maintain that most of the time. Um, but if you've got like a significant health deficit, I don't believe that most of the time you're going to fix it purely with diet and lifestyle. And, you know, there might be some exceptions and, and, you know, some autoimmune conditions. Okay. We can certainly maybe, you know, get that in remission or reduce those symptoms with diet. But if we're actually wanting to fix some of the underlying imbalances, I do think a lot of the time we do need supplementation. Now, that said, I also don't know that everyone needs to be taking a million and one supplements for their whole life. I do think that most supplements are going to be like a time and place kind of thing. So, and I mean, this it's funny because you do see so many different perspectives here. Like I'll often, because I do a lot of mentoring, I'll get clients like mentee practitioners and they'll send me their, their sample, um, you know, gut protocols. And there might be, it sometimes will be like, 50 supplements on there and i'm like wow you're using like twice as many supplements as i use and i get accused of using a lot and then sometimes i get someone that they're like oh you know i only want to use like two supplements and it's like there's just such a huge disparity here in what like how practitioners are approaching this and i get it like i get that supplements cost a lot of money people don't want to be like a walking pill bag like i get this but at the same time i think what the question needs to be is like cost benefit. And it's like, if you're using four different supplements, but that person actually needs 10 supplements to get like significantly better. What's the sunken cost of those four supplements that aren't really getting them anywhere? Like, mm. okay, maybe upfront, it's not a lot of cost, but they're probably going to stand that stuff for a while. They're not really going to get anywhere. Then what are you going to do? Whereas, okay, you use all 10 supplements you actually need off the bat might cost a little bit more upfront, but 12 weeks from now, you can now reduce it, go down to six, go down to five. They're feeling a lot better. Like arguably that was a cheaper option, right? So I think we need to, we need to do our due diligence as coaches and not, not be swayed by a client saying, Hey, you know, I think that's too many supplements or like, I think we actually need to be open and honest and say, look, for me to do my job well, I actually think these are how many supplements we need to use. And, you know, maybe there's some, optional ones that aren't essential there to you getting better that might make you feel better in, you know, initially but maybe they're not essential to the healing process and i'll let you know which ones those are but i do think there's these foundational supplements that we absolutely need to do need to use if you want me to do my job properly and a lot of the time some of those supplements work better together right so it'll be again we're not we're not doing our due diligence as a coach if we say oh look that's okay we'll cut out that one we'll just use this one it's like but those two together we're going to do five times a job that, that one by itself was going to do mm-hmm. so there's sort of this fear on both ends of using too many and then not using enough and i think supplementation is it's probably the area as coaches so there's the least good educational advice and content out there i think a lot of coaches just don't know at all what to do when it comes to supplements. Mm, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, just actually understanding what the mechanisms of action or what certain supplements actually are doing inside the yeah. body, I think is completely missed from a lot of, they say, oh yeah, berberine's good for bacterial overgrowth. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and yeah, you know, that's almost like the root cause question again, because what I've sort of come more and more to realize is, I like to say like things that are good are kind of good for everything. 
So you start looking at like curcumin, I think is a good example here. It's like, well, what's curcumin good for? People would say, well, it's anti-inflammatory. Yeah, it is anti-inflammatory, but it reduces liver enzymes. It reduces glucose. It reduces triglycerides. It promotes HDL, it reduces LDL. It's got anti-biofilm properties. It um, you know, helps with tight junction expression. It helps chelate, chelate arsenic and lead. Like curcumin does so many different things. And so suddenly we've got some of these almost like super compounds where it's like it's working on 50 different mechanisms, 45 of which you don't even understand and know. It's like, why was it that that thing made that person better? You know, then someone uses curcumin like, oh, you got better because you reduced inflammation. Yeah, maybe, but it also inhibited crime sensing and biofilm formation. You don't even know what they did. You know, like it's like mm. if we can, if we can find some of those supplements that are just so multifaceted, like you said before, Mark, it's like if you just take this this more safeguard foundational approach, we can just see so much positive impact from that. Mm. And if you understand the compounds better too, you might not need to take the twenty supplements because mm. they got yeah. those multifaceted kind of um, things, right? And so. Yeah, I th- I think like the big thing I find is you've just got to be like obviously we've got to keep edu- like people got to keep educating themselves, but you can't have this this mindset of like oh I don't want to give like you said Jake it's like if they need if they need eight if they need ten don't yeah. be like don't not give it to them yeah you know what I mean just because you don't want to be seen to giving out yes. supplements that yes. that's the ego thing coming in you know where um you know and then obviously we want to be more efficient with how we supplement so we don't have to give them 15 supplements you know something that i learned early on as a coach when i was working still in the gym so i was working with a guy named mark carroll who's very much into body composition not so much into the health side of things but he got very good results body comp wise and i'd sit down with mark um and i have a lot of respect for mark and sometimes the client like he would get amazing 12-week transformations and this is a different world okay we're totally talking like bikini body comp okay um but we'd be sitting down and he'd be telling us what he did and like he would take some of these clients really freaking low with calories in my opinion um and those people you know they got an amazing result and they looked incredible afterwards and sometimes i sit there and i'd be like I don't feel, I don't think I've got the confidence to go that low. Like, I don't think I could tell someone with a straight face, hey, this is what our next calorie target is. Um, but sometimes I wanted to because I'm like, I know that they want to get this result. Like, I know that that's what they want, but I just like, it's something within me that I feel uncomfortable even saying that. And so eventually what I had to do is ask myself when I would be writing a plan, like if like all kind of judgment and subjectiveness aside, objectively, if I wanted to get this client to this goal, what do I think is the best thing to do? And then I'd be like, okay, I actually think we should go to this calorie number. Okay, I'm going to tell the client I want to go there. And usually they'd be fine with it. And usually they get the result they want. Um, but I think that's the thinking I've had to take as supplements of, you know, subjectiveness aside or judgment aside, what do I actually think is the best thing for this client? And okay, that's what we should be using. Love it. Mm. I want to uh, segue now just because I love you. You're very outspoken with things, which I uh, I love. You've got your own opinions about the world, which um, I agree with most of them. Um, But I just want to talk about (laughs) the industry and just, um, you know, this might, you know, make you have to think a little bit or you might be just straight off the tongue. Just some of the mistakes you're seeing in the industry and and the direction it's possibly going and and just your thoughts about it and things that maybe – Maybe clients need to look out for with practitioners. Um, what 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 a good practitioner they should be looking for. Or what are yeah. the good things in practitioner they should be looking for? Yeah, I don't want to come across too negative. Like I have a lot of hope for the industry, yeah. um, and I think 
there's a, a quote about like patriotism and it says that the greatest love someone can have for the country is to speak up when the government's doing the wrong thing. I think that's how I feel about the industry. It's like, well, I love the industry. I love the, the health and fitness industry. And because I love it and care about it so much that I, I do actually want to try to point to when we're failing and when we're doing things poorly. Um, but at the same time, I also think that like yelling at people who are doing stuff badly isn't the solution either. I think that the solution to the industry getting better is A, us doing better, but B, us showing a better way. I think educating into a, a better path is the only way stuff actually moves forwards. So I try not, and maybe I get caught up in it sometimes, but I try not to spend too much of my time critiquing or criticizing what others are doing. But I might at the same time look at the mistakes that I think are being made and then use that to create content or educational you know, ideas about a better way of doing that. <laughs> and so if I look at the things that I think, and again, not naming names, but look at some of the things I think are being done maybe in a way that could be done a lot better at the moment. I do think that we live in an age now where I don't think there's any... Uh, okay, let me give you a quick story. So again, when I was working in the gym, you guys know Christian Thibodeau? Yeah. I, I don't. Go on, man. Okay, so um, T Nation, he used to go a lot for T Nation, just like oh, a right, yeah, yeah. bodybuilding coach. Um, I... <laughs> I don't want to like give too much away here. So I was having to write like social media articles where I was working and um and you guys obviously know Charles Poliquin. Yep. Mm. Do you know Eric Braverman? Yes, I, I yeah, I do. So no. Poliquin used to use a Braverman test. This yeah, is like yeah. a oh, the Braverman test, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like a personality test. So Eric Braverman is the, the guy who came up with that. So we used to use Braverman tests and and whatever else. I don't use it anymore. But I had to write an article about about this kind of thing and, and how we could use that with clients. I read this article and, you know, I'd read Eric's books and I, I felt like I was pretty well aware of this stuff. And then it goes out online and within a few minutes, Christian's calling up the gym. He knows he knew the, the gym quite well. And he's like, you guys are posting this stuff that's like, like factually incorrect and this is what the science says. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is like the first time I'd realised, hang on, I can't hold an opinion just because I've been taught that or just because someone who seemed to have a higher authority than me said it. There's actually ways we can verify information nowadays, right? So that for me was a really big learning moment where I'm like, actually, unless I feel like there's there's irrefutable evidence or there's, there's at least some form of scientific evidence that I can point to, I don't want to share that. Or I want to be really clear that it's there isn't the evidence to support it. Um, and then, like, if people have an issue with the stuff I'm sharing, fine, that's great. But I feel confident in it because I know I can point to evidence. And so I think that that is something today as as the, like part of the industry, I think we can't ignore the fact that actually evidence exists, right? And, you know, back in the day, maybe it was harder to access evidence, you know, even before the internet. So there was a lot of stuff that just got shared. You know, so-and-so said this, an elite coach taught this. It just gets recirculated. But we can actually, you know, for the lack of a better term, we can fact check this stuff now and we can see, okay, maybe that stuff wasn't actually correct. Maybe that stuff just got grandfathered in and some of it was good, but that bit was false. So I think an issue that I'm seeing in the industry is, is still this tendency to hold on to that kind of hearsay stuff. My mentor said this, his mentor said that, their mentor said that, therefore this is true. And it's like, well, hold up. We need to question everything. Because 
I mean, even just from a blood work perspective, like I mentioned the eosinophils thing. I mean, GGT, what, what does low GGT mean? It'd be low magnesium. Low magnesium, basically. Mm. Okay. So, I mean, every single one of those answers, we could go to the literature and say that that's a, I would argue, a, a poor answer. Mm. So, wow. Yeah. So, magnesium. I had spent like so long trying to find what the deal was with this GGT magnesium thing. From what I can tell, it went back to one text. It went back to one guy who quoted a textbook. I had to buy this textbook to actually find the reference. The reference was to a particular um, uh, like DNA aspect in mice where he suspected that the magnesium would affect that genetic output, which would affect glutathione synthesis. I then found studies where they caused knockout of that, that DNA in those mice. And they found that actually it caused um, high uh, GGT. When they when they caused magnesium deficiency in those mice, it caused high GGT. Yeah. If we then look at human studies on magnesium deficiency, we see high GGT. And these are usually done in, in diabetics. But again, the best evidence we've got is that a magnesium deficiency most likely will increase GGT. So you look at stuff like that and it's like, okay, it was based on, I would argue, a very tenuous link, but it just gets repeated. And we need to do our due diligence and ask why. You know, I used to teach it. Right? I just assumed people who taught me did their due diligence. So I think that's one thing as an industry. We need to start asking questions. We can't just believe what we're taught because, you know, 50% of it's wrong and you don't know which 50%, right? Like you need to really ask more. So that's one thing. Can, can uh, we pause on that quickly? Because I wanted to ask, like, how do you – how like what's your process to verify information or fact checked in, 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 in which is a common word that's thrown around? Yeah, so sometimes you know fish doesn't know it's wet. So sometimes we'll have like fundamental beliefs or or like I'll think things about blood markers that I won't even know. It's just like a, a belief that I've taken on, right? So like like an example would be the MCV and B twelve thing. It's like. We all think that. Have you ever gone into PubMed and tried to find research to support it? And so sometimes I'll identify, oh, that's a belief I've got that I've never actually looked into. So then what I'll do is I'll just go to PubMed and I'll I'll start trying to find. Well, initially my my process would be, well, mechanistically what's going on that will cause that, yeah? And then if I can identify what that mechanism might be, now I'll go into PubMed and I'll try to find papers that will support that. Um, and if I can't find papers that will support that in PubMed, then what I want to do is I want to find out, well, why did people think that in the first place? So I'll just be Googling things. I'll try to find people who are teaching that. Maybe I'll find courses where it's been taught. Try to find mechanistically why did they think that? And then I'll take that mechanism and go back to PubMed. Be like, well, does that mechanism hold true? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you don't have enough research on it um but it's you know it's a whole process of like actually i having to identify a belief because a lot of the time the belief is just subconscious and i'm not even aware that i have it yeah, yeah. um and then sometimes like i'll look into it and i'm like oh great there is evidence to support that like there's there's something there um but you know sadly like a lot of time you look at it and you're like this is nothing there this is you know high alp what's high alp high alp or oh, some people would say leaky gut uh, why, why leaky gut? Um, because there's uh, tissue breakdown usually releases ALP, doesn't it? Because alkaline phosphatase is found in intestinal tissue, yeah? Yeah, that's what. And what percentage of serum alkaline phosphatase is coming from the intestines? You Such tell me. an incredibly low percentage. Like it's almost yeah. all bone liver. And so. Because there's also ALP in your, your biliary ducts as well. I don't know how much percentage it is. So, like, yeah, yeah sorry, go on. Yeah, no, you're, you're spot on. So. 
if we look at something like alkyne phosphatase, in the case of severe intestinal damage, let's say IBD conditions, we can see an acute rise in, in ALP. But if we're talking something as simple as like intestinal permeability, what are the odds that there's going to be enough intestinal alkaline phosphatase that's going to register on in serum blood work? Like I'd say it's it's incredibly low. And it's not something I personally feel like I see with clients. And again, that's low-level evidence. But if we're simply looking at research as far as where alkaline phosphatase is coming from, most of that serum alkaline phosphatase has nothing to do with intestines, right? Yeah. So like, again, there's some of these things we just need to question. Yeah, okay, there might be a mechanism that makes sense, but does it actually truly makes sense right or is it just like an idea that kind of sounded good um i don't know if that answered your question or not but i think before that we were talking about sort of other you know issues or, or sort of critiques, i guess yeah. what you said was mate was what was really good which i loved and i wanted to make a point of it is that you're constantly critically um criticizing your own beliefs you're mm. constantly questioning them which i think is really hard as a coach sometimes especially running a business sometimes you can get caught in just the you know you're just working with clients constantly yes. and not you're not upgrading and saying yes. hang on a second like have i really started to think about um where i'm at at the moment you know what i mean i've just got on the grind a little bit and i'm not criticizing how good i am as a coach and yep. from the sounds of it you sit there and you're like i've formed this belief is it, is it real? And you're just yeah. constantly going to the whale going, you know, I want to find evidence to prove this. Yeah, yeah. Charles used to say, I think he maybe said it to Tim Ferriss or something, he was talking about what makes a good coach, like a, a great coach. Um, I'm going to butcher this quote, but he was saying that like the the good coaches, like some of the, you know, the, the top tier coaches, they'll spend, I think he said about four hours a week upskilling, like this dedicated time to upskilling. And they said the, the best coaches, like the, the top kind of, you know, 1% type coaches, it's like they're spending eight hours a week upskilling. I don't know where Charles got these numbers from, but I think it, it sort of holds true a little bit is that sometimes it is easy just to get sucked into your business and then you find, oh, I haven't really done anything to upskill this week. I'm just spinning my wheels and, and working with clients. And I think carving out time, intentional time to upskill, I think is one of the most important things we can do. Um, and that probably leads me on to, to the next sort of issue I see in the industry is different people come into the industry for different reasons, right? Um, and I think that most people come into it because they want to help people and maybe they had health issues himself or a loved one had health issues and, and that sort of, you know, pushed him to take this stuff more seriously. Um, but I see this big merging over the last few years of like health coaching and business coaching. And there's sort of been this massive, in in my opinion, um, kind of like, yeah, I guess confusion between those two. And suddenly it's kind of like, well, are you being driven by wanting to have an impact on health and help people? Or are you being driven by essentially just like financially being successful and, and you know, increasing your bottom dollar? Um, and I don't really understand it, but it feels like there's actually a lot of, it's almost like celebrating that. Like I see people like coaches, health coaches posting about how much, you know, they were able to to up the cost of their services and how much more they, you know, they're charging and they made and this, that, and the other. And it's like, so firstly, kind of like, what's your what's your why? Like, what's your purpose here? And then secondly, I look at that and be like, man, if I was a client, there would be massive red flags going on for me. Like, if that's what you're kind of gloating about, like how much money you're charging. But you're 
like your bottom dollar is influenced by me as a paying customer. So you're just gloating about how you're essentially almost taking advantage financially. Why would you be the practitioner for me? I didn't get that, right? So like, I feel like that is a big concern I've got where there's been this, this merging of those two worlds. And I think that part of what's come with that that I think is dangerous is high-value coaches charge more. That's obvious. And so now for people who may be entering or following kind of that pathway, they're looking at it and they're like, well, if that's what it means to be a good coach, I need to charge X amount of money. How do I become a coach that charges X amount of money? I need to be a high-value coach. How do I be a high-value coach? Well, I need to be able to work with, you know, different class people. I need to be able to get results. How do I do that? If I'm new in the industry and I don't have the experience, how do I do that? Well, you're kind of going to more or less copy from people who are doing that, right? And so I feel like there's this, this push now where people are, are not so much kind of like collaborating and working together, but almost like, you know, just copying sort of what other people are doing, copying protocols, like the amount of you know, the amount of protocols I'll get from a client, I'll be like, I'll have a new client. Hey, what have you done to pass to send me a protocol? It's a copy of one of mine. And it's like, that was from a coach I, I never worked with. Like sometimes it'll be my exact document just with the, the head has been changed, the logo has been changed. And like to an extent, I don't mind that much. Like sometimes I think it's a little bit funny because I'm like, the reality is when you're spending your time copying that, like I'm spending that eight hours a week learning, right? So like to me, it's like, I know that ultimately I'm going to be evolving. You're probably not because you're kind of chasing this other thing. But that's sort of a, a danger I see in the industry because then the people who are doing that, they can't they can't then come to me and be like, hey, I want to learn more. Yeah, because like there's sort of that that sort of, you know, riff there where they're like, well, I can't let him know or whoever it is that like I'm kind of taking their content or, or copying or whatever. So now those people are isolating themselves. And that's not going to be good for their clients, right? So it's almost like wanting to like skip ahead to this level where they're like a high value coach without doing the hard work to get there, but then it caps them and they can't move any further. So I don't know if you guys are seeing that, but that for me feels like a big concern. Yeah, it happens a lot. Big one I noticed in the last 12 months is that like the business mentoring people, like the it's sort of a little bit tacky coming into the health space and don't get me wrong like even when I was a PT I was like like health coaches need business help like I I always thought that like I was yeah, like because oh, it's, it's part of the business yeah totally. exactly but like it's the it's the real tackiness of it I'd have I'd have at least five or six different business coaches direct message me every single day saying do you want to book <laughs> out do you want to book out your client list and rah, rah. I'm like I can't believe how many there are surely they can't all be successful no that's right yeah, wild. Yeah, it's a wild west, like wild, it's crazy. Yeah, and it I'm, is. I'm with you when I, like you said, like if I, some of the things I see, I'm like, if I was a client and and someone kept throwing like deals at me and stuff like that and um, pricing and everything at me, I'd be like, I don't know, this doesn't seem doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem like it's wanting to help me. It's just yeah. sort of trying to get me in the door. Yeah, mm. yeah. You're seeing that person as a commodity. They're not actually someone that you're trying to help really. yeah yeah exactly mm. i've definitely seen that that's a massive pattern mm. yeah yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of different business coaches out there that i think health coaches are learning from but they're like business coaches and they're like you know like some of these business coaches are charging like fifty thousand dollars for 12 weeks and like it's it's yeah. wild man yeah. and I, then I, people are being inspired by that stuff you know 
I feel yeah, like and it's a pyramid. Sorry, game. Marcus. Sorry, it, mate. It, no, it is. It is like a pyramid scheme because, like, you've got the little the people that learn from, it and then they start charging twenty five k for their packages, and then they'll they'll learn that little bit more, and they'll double down on their next yeah. package, which isn't you know instead of fifty now to eighty, yeah. and then now they're doing the same thing, and now they become a business coach. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like a it's like a you manifest in the money. So like I've got yeah. a business coach who's a hundred who charges me a hundred thousand. Yeah. I charge fifty thousand. These health coaches charge twenty five. You know, like yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I sort of go back to that initial thing I said where, you know, I don't think the answer is necessarily to, like, yell at those people. It's like the answer is to show a different way because you get a lot of coaches are coming into the industry and they might look at that and be like, that's what I do. That's that's how you do it. That's what it means to be a coach. And it's like, well, hang on. You just need permission sometimes to know that that's not the way you need to do it. Right, like if you just know, actually, there's other coaches here, and that's not our value and the way you know charging. Like, I think that's a really interesting one. You know, often I get clients be like, "How do you how do you dictate charging?" Like, I have mentoring clients, like, I don't know how to charge. I'm like, look, honestly, you need to understand that there's different ways people talk about this, and you know, some of the ways that people say how you charge is you charge basically as high as what someone will pay. Right, like if you're booked out, you charge more. You're booked out, you charge more again. You just keep you fill your books, charge more, and then you just kind of you know double your prices. See, if people will pay it. You know that's such common advice: double your prices. And it's like, okay, look, that I don't want to take away that for some people, that's how they want to do it. So I'll tell people this is one way people do it. But then there's other ways people do it, and the way I do it, like I, I acknowledge that actually a lot of the clients I work with, a lot of them are too sick to work. Right, like a lot of them are working mm. part time. A lot of them are bedridden. And I'm like, there's there's two options here either so like you know I'm, I'm booked out i'm booked out usually sort of six seven weeks in advance but i'm like i could charge more right like i could make it so i'm booked out one week in advance but that's going to be inaccessible to a lot of the clients i want to work with so for me i prefer to charge what i feel comfortable charging that i think honors the amount of work and learning and education i've done but at the same time hopefully isn't too inaccessible to people who might really truly need my services and the, the downside is that means people are going to have to wait two months to work with me, right? But the alternative is I charge double that. They can work with me more quickly, but that's not, I don't want to just be available to people who could afford that. You know, I don't want to just be available to CEOs or, or, you know, people who are working full time. So I think sometimes even telling people that it's like, Hey, you can actually dictate your own prices. You don't need to charge more just because you're busy. You can, but you don't need to. Sometimes people are like, oh, oh, I thought I had to. Like, I thought I had to do it this way because everyone says that. So sometimes it's being given permission that actually you can value different things. That's okay, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. Like I've I, I come from the same place as you as well, man. Like, and I was actually one of the discussion. We actually had this discussion. I don't <laughs> did we? <laughs> yeah, we did. We spoke yeah, the exact same things. And um, yeah, because I I was a little bit lost with it myself. And um, and yeah, I've kind of landed into the same philosophy because yeah, like so many people are unwell, and you know, there's supplements to buy as well. Yeah. And so yeah, it's a yeah, it's important for sure to make it accessible otherwise you know why are we doing it mm. Mm. And you, know? If, you know again like there'll be people who feel comfortable and confident doing it for different values and that's not necessarily our space to judge but we just want to show yeah. that actually there's different different views here you know yeah, and it's exactly. okay if you're a new coach entering this space it's okay for you to pick one and it's okay mm. for you to, to feel confident maybe not doubling <laughs> doubling your prices every year and seeing how high you can get if that's yeah. not what you want to do 
yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, but it is a, it is a bit of a minefield for clients trying to, especially with social media. It's it's a it's a minefield for them um, to try and sift through a lot of stuff to try and find yeah. a quality coach, and not like you know, there's the coach who, um, and it depends on your service, but there's the coach who's really informed, but then there's the, the the coach that's for you. You know what I mean? The one that actually cares about um, your your result. You know what I mean? So yeah. there's a lot to work through there. Um, Mate, I want to uh, push on a little bit here to coffee. Oh, I'm like, when are we going to talk about coffee? Go on, let's go. It's been the topic of the uh, Instagram for the for a little bit. Um, and when you were, you know, it's funny when you were saying you were saying you went and got a barista course that you put that film up of you making the coffee. I'm like, what the fuck <laughs> is that? Um, I want to go into this because of um, I I get my clients off coffee a fair bit, like depending on who they are, obviously, and depending on what's going on with them, and I get really, really good results um from that, and you know, and I know you're you're very passionate and um about coffee and its benefits and. And, you know, sort of showing people that it's not just a negative, which, you know, we love. But, like, um, obviously, for me, it sort of challenges my belief system that um, I'm not saying I don't think coffee's bad, but I just think that for some people coming off it, it, it obviously helps them anecdotally. But I don't have the evidence to back that mm. up scientifically. Mm. Um, so mm. I'd just love to just talk further into it. Do you have anything you want to add on that as oh, well? Oh, no, this is the same. Like, something that I've noticed is typically people tend to feel a bit better on less, a little less coffee. Like, I've, I've noticed that if people are drinking a lot of coffee, they feel better on less. Um, or, you know, it, it may drive their behaviours in certain directions. Like, if they're kind of um, drinking a lot of coffee, they might not eat as much. Um, they might find themselves kind of maybe being too productive and <laughs> and stuff like that so um which you know we know for a lot of people when they've got gut issues we've got to sometimes get them to be a little bit more regulated yeah and and that sort of thing so yeah we'd love to know your views on a man and um and if you even agree with some of the things we're saying and if you think you just it's bullshit let's challenge it let's go <laughs> so i think one thing we need to start by saying is when people are coming to you they've they've got health issues usually yeah yeah and so generally there's going to be a number of things that aren't lined up whether that's diet lifestyle whatever and so it's un you know we could say the same thing here with supplements right it's sometimes I'll use 10 different supplements and I'll be like, look, in all honesty, this is a new supplement I'm using. I think it's working well, but I don't know because you're using 10 things. How am I meant to know which one worked, mm -hmm. right? So sometimes we can do our best as a, as a coach or practitioner to try to identify what was the thing there that worked, but it's bloody hard to do. And I would say that a lot of the time with coffee is that someone will say, I had a coffee and I felt better. My coach told me to stop drinking coffee. Okay, but what else did you do when you started with that coach? Started having a consistent bedtime. Sorry. Started getting. Sorry, mate. One, two. Yeah, you good. Far out. What happened? It's all good. It's all good. It's all we just had we just had Leo come in and just uh, say hello. <laughs> oh, sorry, that was my son. I thought I had the door locked. <laughs> cut that out. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. So, what else do they do when they cut our coffee? You know, often people have started a, a you know new morning routine. They're getting sunlight in the morning. Maybe they're having a big glass of water before they do anything else for the day, or they're now having a consistent bedtime. Maybe they're doing mindfulness and meditation before bed. Maybe now they've started supplementation. They're starting an exercise routine. Whatever it is, yeah, it's not common that you're going to get a client come to you and as a coach you're going to be like, keep everything the same. Don't change anything. We're just going to cut our coffee, right? Now maybe that's happened before. 
Okay. Um, so I, I certainly acknowledge for some people, they're not going to feel as good on coffee or on lots of coffee, right? Like we know that there's genetic differences. We know that there's some genes that mean that you're more likely to get an, an anxiety feeling with coffee. And for some people, they love that. Like it's kind of this like you stress kind of thing. Like, yeah, I'm more productive. It makes me do more. I feel better. Great. For some people like, no, no, I feel too anxious. Mm. Okay, cool. For you, maybe that's not the thing, right? <laughs> so there is definitely going to be individual variables variability there. And I do think genetically that's a big part of it. We do obviously know with the CYP gene that some people will detoxify caffeine more slowly. Is that a bad thing? Not necessarily. But if you're having coffee one, two o'clock in the afternoon, it might be affecting your sleep, right? We, I would say in the literature and in, in the actual research, some of the only negatives for the general population, obviously like kids and, and pregnant women and stuff, there's a few different things. But for the general population, one of the only real potential negatives we actually see based on evidence is a potential negative effect on sleep, right? And most of the time we can negate that if we are just um, mindful of when we're consuming that coffee. We also, like even people with the CYP gene, if you habitually drink coffee, you actually now do detoxify more quickly as well, the caffeine. So a lot of the time, some of these things that could be potential negatives if you're a habitual coffee drinker, they no longer become negatives. Like your body actually does adapt quite well. So at the same time, I don't tell all my clients to drink coffee. And there are some clients I say, hey, look, for you, this may actually be a negative, right? If you're noticing symptoms with it. But at the same time as coaches, how often do you notice someone has issues with onion? Or how often do you notice someone has issues with pineapple or strawberries? I mean, strawberries are super common with the histamine issues, right? So someone will look at it and be like, oh, but I had a client who did badly with coffee. Cool. Did you have you ever had a client who did badly with strawberries? Does that mean you shouldn't eat strawberries? Like, mm. you know, it's easy to kind of demonize. And I think we just have this sort of this idea in our mind. And so we're on the lookout for people who have issues with coffee. If you look at actual reported, um, like if you look at studies where they look at things like IBD or IBS symptoms and they look at people uh, who who report the food triggers, um, even like gastritis symptoms, people who are getting stomach and, and reflux issues, if they self-report, coffee is actually relatively low on that list. Mm. Like, yes, there's still people who do self-report that coffee is an, an issue, but there's a whole lot of basic foods that we would never even think about that seem to be bigger triggers than coffee is. So that brings me to a foundation of, okay, some people aren't going to do well with it, but some people aren't going to do well with anything. Like any health food we look at, meat. I've had clients who don't do well with meat. They've got sulfur issues. They've got low stomach acid issues. So we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be putting coffee on this like isolated, oh, someone didn't do well with it, then it's the coffee's fault. It's like, well, maybe there's other stuff going on. So that's one thing I'd say. Then the next point I'd make is we love to have all these preconceived ideas about what's bad about coffee. It's going to ruin your adrenals and it's going to ruin your blood sugar management and your cortisol is going to spike and, you know, it's going to make you diabetic and it's full of moles. So your liver is going to be destroyed. And it's like, well, if we look at the research on all of these things, and I mean big data sets over decades with thousands of people, we see that coffee is amazing for the liver reduces liver enzymes, protective against non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Like you simply cannot look at the research and not walk out of it saying coffee is good for your liver. Mm. Fundamentally, it is. We look at things like, um, you know, cognitive decline and risk towards things like dementia. 
And coffee is undoubtedly protective against that. Again, this is ample evidence of that. Then we look at even IBS, and obviously IBS is an umbrella term, but we look at, at coffee consumption and, uh, and correlating with IBS um, in a, I guess, frequency, and we see that there's actually seems in multiple studies to be a protective effect of coffee, and that's because it's modulating microbiome, it's helping with gastric juices, you know, how often you have clients who have symptoms because they're not digesting food well, it can help with that. If you've got motility issues, it can help with that. So yes, there are going to be individuals with some of these issues who might feel worse, but there's probably going to be more who are going to feel better. I'm going to, I'm going to pause there because I'm, I'm sure I said some things to be like, oh, but what about this? Or what about that? So yeah, how are you guys feeling so far? Are you with me? I, um, yeah, I don't, yeah, I, 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 I can only agree because I mean, the, the evidence is there as you've shown and, you know, well, everyone drinks it and you know majority of people when they do drink it do seem to feel okay on it and you know i, I know there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there is that coffee drinkers do tend to have a like like um not as early mortality there's like yeah a sort of studies. Yep. Like, yeah and so you know if it's been around for so long how can it be that bad you know what i mean so yeah well i'm, I'm actually a coffee drinker like I, i'm i'm definitely not against it i'll normally uh, take it out of a client like jordan said if they're a little bit dysregulated but one thing i've learned recently is about like different immune pathways as well and a lot of the people um we're working with say they've got bacterial issues lps and it's driving like the th2 pathway um and coffee can drive th2 pathway as well so possibly can start exacerbating things like like histamine and um, allergies and stuff like that. And what I've tended to find is when, uh, say, I've taken coffee away from those people um, through their antimicrobial or something like that, and then they bring it back in, they've actually got like they're, they're, they actually deal with it a lot better. Because they're and what from my learnings, what I'm seeing is we're not dry, like they're not driven so far into TH2 anymore. They're more regulated immune spawn. So when they do drink coffee, any of those symptoms aren't really popping up. Mm. And you know, but is that the coffee though, or is that, or is that the bacterial? But it is. It's and, the, it's and, the or is it something else as well, right? Like, so I hear what you're saying, and it's something I need to look into more. But if we look at like inflammatory response to coffee, generally we would see a, a, a benefit, right? So, like for me, I'm like, well, mechanistically, I hear what you're saying, but do we see that? But then, like, I guess again, this would be my anecdote. I do see that people, especially with like yeast issues, do tend to do worse with it, and we obviously know that yeast will affect the sort of dopamine receptors. And so maybe there is, you know, maybe there's something that neither of us have just said where if someone's got disposed the coffee's affecting him. So I, I certainly do think that, you know, I have seen that in clients where often with the anxiety side of things, they're feeling more anxious during or before gut protocol, they stop coffee or reduce it. And then afterwards they respond a lot better to it. So I agree with you there. Um, but again, I'd say that's, I would say that's a bit of an outlier. Like I would say maybe 10% of my sort of gut clients would fall into that boat. Um, and then most don't really notice anything negative and then some feel better. I've, I've even had some, I had this one client not long ago and she was getting no deep sleep, no deep sleep, right? Like literally was getting like four or five minutes deep sleep. She was, I think she was using her aura to, to track that. And she'd been diagnosed with a sleep condition. Okay. Yeah. And we did multiple things and we eventually got her to a point where she was getting about an hour of deep sleep, which was like life-changing for her because she was actually falling asleep during the day, but not like you wouldn't tell she was asleep, but her, her mind was asleep. It was wow. like crazy. Um, and then she's getting an hour of deep sleep. And then she goes, I'm going to try cutting out coffee. And she cut out coffee 
And a deep sleep went back down to like 20 minutes, 10 minutes. She did it for like a week or two, right? Like it wasn't just one night. Yeah. She's like, holy crap, what's happening? Actually, it was caffeine she cut out. Yeah. Um, but and she then got she through goes, that like initial sort of shit. Got through that first few days. Yeah. yeah. Didn't get any better. Goes back to drinking caffeine, immediately back like an hour, hour 10. So it actually had the opposite effect in her. We'd actually promote her to sleep. And like for me, I'm looking at that. I'm like, I love coffee, but I can't even explain that. Like, <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. Um, so, yeah, obviously, there's going to be individual variability. Even, you know, there's so many things that people are like, oh, but it does this, it does that. It's like, yeah, well, you know, the blood sugar one, if we look at, at blood sugar in coffee, it's like, well, coffee actually appears to be protective against type 2 diabetes. You know, they had they did a study where they had people consume, I think it was like six, four or six cups of coffee a day. Um, and this is people who had poor blood sugar management. They did this for, it was at least a month. And there was no change in blood sugar profile at the end of the month. And this is like very high coffee consumption mm-hmm. in people who had poor blood sugar management anyway, right? So like we've got good data on this stuff, you know, even even hydration, you know, people will talk all the time, oh, coffee dehydrates you, dehydrates, like you reduce, you know, mineral content. Like firstly, the mineral content thing, that is based off, that's like the GGT magnesium thing. It's like based on one tenuous link. And I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but we don't know how much, right? If we, I, I remember trying to do the calculations one time because you could see the increase in urinary output of magnesium with caffeine consumption. And then I, I sort of like calculated what that would equate to. And it was in the, the realm of like a couple milligrams of magnesium. It's like, okay, that's great. But also how many people are low magnesium, like kind of everyone, and how much are you going to supplement with? Are you going to supplement with five milligrams or are you going to supplement with 500 milligrams? It's like, how different, how much difference is losing like three milligrams of magnesium going to make in the greater scheme of things? So until we have better research around showing greater magnesium loss, I'm not convinced that's an issue. Hydration, you know, we've got studies where people would have three to six coffees a day and the hydration status was the same. So is it dehydrating? doesn't seem to be. So there's all these preconceived, oh, it does this, it does that. It's like, yeah, but based on what? Like, it's just, it, I, I don't know why coffee became the villain. Nah, I love it, mate. Yeah, you're right. And this is not just coffee, man. Like, this is so many things. And you know what? I actually remember you were talking earlier on about us, like, just sort of parroting a little bit. And I remember yeah. you me- you messaged me once about something that I'd put up on Instagram. You're like, <laughs> you're like, hey, man, can you send me the evidence about, like, this? And I was like, I was actually parroting one of my mentors. And I was like, that taught me a lesson straight away. <laughs> oh, sorry, mate. That taught me a lesson straight away. I was like, oh, God, I've got to make sure I do that again. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, like, I I try not to, but sometimes I'm just too tempted when I see something that I'm like, I know that didn't come out of out of evidence. Like, I know that that was based on hearsay. Um, so yeah. no, nah, it's good. As long as people in a healthy way, yeah. As long as people take it the right way, where they mm. you know they don't crack the shit. So like you know, you say, wow, yeah, that's on me. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and you got that lesson early on as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think it's a valuable yeah. lesson to learn. Yeah, same. I've had plenty of those. So it's good. So something something I um wanted to touch on with you, man. You kind of brought up genes and um there's this recent Gary Brecker um podcast that went up, which I know Gary Brecker has healthy intentions and he's doing some great work for people and and whatnot. But um yeah, there was a, a bit of a backlash, I guess, on some of his claims like with methylation and, and stuff like that. I know you kind of mentioned something in your story the other day, which actually inspired me to go check out um the guy who broke it down. Oh, Chris Masterjohn did a very Chris good Chris Masterjohn who broke it down beautifully. Um, yeah, dude, I'd, I'd love you to touch on that because you're very well versed in genes because you're obviously interpreting them, 
you know, probably pretty regularly through Anthony J's gene testing. Yeah. yeah. What was your thoughts on this kind of some of these methylation claims being it's like the nutrient refinery system? <laughs> so firstly, yeah. I don't necessarily do gene testing with all of my clients. So like you said, I do do some work for Dr. Anthony J. I think Anthony J is the best in, in this sort of gene space. Um Dr. Ben Lynch does some good work there as well. And, and what you'll notice when you look at these guys is they're not excessively highlighting just one gene. And, you know, Dr. Ben Lynch, uh, a few that he does sort of talk about more than others. But realistically, you do these DNA reports and it's like, okay, we're not looking at just one gene. We're looking at, I mean, ultimately, we're looking at thousands. But really, the report's going to highlight 100 plus genes, right? And the issue and I didn't watch the Rogan interview, so I actually don't I don't know exactly what Drecker was claiming. I just watched Master John's critique of it. Um, but the issue that that I think came up there is it sounded like he was predominantly using like five or six different genes. And yeah. it comes back to that root cause issue before where it's like, well, if you've got 30 root causes, it has to be one of those. If you've got six genes you're testing, it has to be one of those. And, you know, I did see little snippets where it felt like he was saying things like, you know, if you've got this one symptom, this gene's why. And it's like, well, hang on. Again, possibilities, probabilities. Is it not a possibility that anything else could cause that symptom? That's my issue with symptomology, right? It's, I think symptomology is amazing, but we have to acknowledge there's usually many things that can cause that one symptom. You know, uh, I did a post a little while ago about like nails and like white spots in the nails. Like people will look at that, zinc, zinc deficiency, white spot in your nail. It can be, can be calcium. What else can it be? You knock your fingers. Like they did one no, study. Saying that. Just yeah. that was the most likely cause in, in <laughs> one study. It's like all those people did stuff with that hand where they knocked their fingers. So suddenly now you have somebody who's like, oh, you got white nails, you need zinc. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. You know, like, so that's the issue with someone like, I guess, where Gary's saying, look, here's six genes and all of your issues are explained by this. And maybe he's not saying that. Like I said, I didn't watch the interview, but that was what I felt was being said based on what I've seen. He's very, he's very biased. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I've seen some claims where it's like, I'll tell you exactly when you're going to die based on these genes or whatever. It's like, mm, I don't know about that. Maybe that's been taken out of context. And so, again, you know, maybe I'm judging it incorrectly, but some of those claims feel a bit out of whack. I'm pretty sure that's what he said to Dana White. You're going to die in 10 years based on yeah. the genetic. Yeah. Well, that's where he started. He started in like kind of um, insurance claims and yeah. like for health insurance. And he had to be able to predict people's lifespan yeah. to then write them up the right claim. And, and the thing is like he's doing, he's well known. Obviously, he's worked mm -hmm. with big, big names. Um, but the sad thing is that's the stuff that does well. Yeah. Is these hugely exaggerative black and white statements. You're, I, I can tell you when you're going to die. Or, you know, you, you're not sleeping because of this gene. Or, like, whatever the claim is, it's like, man, if I truly believed that stuff, marketing would be easier. You know, oh. growing an audience would be easier. Because you could just say, this issue is caused by this. But instead, I'm stuck saying, like, these are the 10 possibilities. Or this is, you know, a, a potential link with this. And it's like, that's not as sexy. To be like, here's some possibilities to think about. No one wants to hear that. People want to hear this really audacious claim. And, you know, is he doing that intentionally or is that just the ways wide? He seems like a pretty full-on kind of guy. <laughs> I think it's probably natural for him to talk in those sort of absolutes. But, you know, that's, that's I guess, the problem. I don't know what he said about methylation, but I just don't understand why people are so in love with methylation. You know, how often you get a client come to you, they're like, I love this, they're like, I've got the MTH of R. It's like, it's like a disease. Like, man, that's yeah. a death sentence. Good yeah. luck. Like, nice knowing you. 
And, you know, they've had a naturopath who's done like these MTHFR tests and I don't know why, but they've made it sound like, oh, that's, that's the cause of all your health issues. There's nothing you can do. Like you're going to, you know, you're going to be infertile and you can have this disease. It's like, dude, just take some B vitamins. Like, it's not <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally some riboflavin and some bloody folate and B12. Like, it's not hard, is it? Yeah. So I don't really know why that gets so much airtime in some circles, but. The thing with genes that I always say to clients when I, when I do do gene testing is blood work is going to tell you what's happening here and now. What's the current state of your health? We're going to get a really good insight into that. If we do gene testing, we're not really getting a good insight into your current state of health. But what we are seeing is what are some of the, the hurdles or some of the potential traps that you might fall into? So from a healthy aging or longevity standpoint, I think this stuff is really helpful. But if you were like, my health is totally compromised here and now, make me better, I'd say, look, we need to see what's going on now. We need to do the blood work. That's our starting point. Once we've got you to a point where you're functioning okay, okay, now let's look at the stuff you're susceptible to. Oh, maybe it explains some of that. Cool. You know, maybe like a lot of the time I will then do the testing and it's like, man, you've got like 20 genes that are suggesting you're going to have compromised gut function and potentially gluten sensitivity. And, you know, you've got this like high sensitivity to interleukin-6 and all these other issues going on from a gut perspective. Okay, that explains why you were the person who was more susceptible to that. But did it tell me how to fix it? Not necessarily at that stage. It's going to help us not get you back to that point. So I do think there's value in it. Um, but for me, I, I very much look at it like, hey, this is going to help us keep you healthy, but it's not necessarily going to tell me why you're not healthy now. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, Jake, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast, man. That was a beautiful way to wrap it up. And um Man, I'm just obviously I'm forever grateful for you, and um, you know, and also just the your ability to be very, uh, yeah, just kind of straight up with some of these uh, important things for us health coaches that we need to be always questioning with ourselves. And so, the one thing that I've really got from this is to question everything and um, and dig deeper. And so, thank you so much for that, brother. Um, Absolute yeah. pleasure. I love that. If that's the takeaway, question everything, then I'm very happy, and that means question us as well. You know, like. I think the worst thing that can happen is someone can put us or anyone on a pedestal or we can put a mentor on a pedestal and think that they can't be wrong. And the, one of the most amazing things that can happen is when we realize our mentor is wrong and we still have respect for them and we still learn from them, I think that's where we get a, a greater like perspective actually on how all this works. So keep asking questions, dig into whatever Jordan says and Marcus says and I say, and if, if you find out that we're wrong about something, Amazing. Perfect. I want it. like, show us, tell us. That's that's good. Exactly. That's how we grow. Yeah, 100%. Thanks so much, mate. Really appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Pleasure. See you, mate. Thanks for listening. We hope this opened your mind to new possibilities in your journey. If you want to follow on for more, please subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Life Athlete Health and at Coach Jordan Briggs. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next time.